Welcome to the Seospo Energy Podcast. I'm Myung-san Um, and I have Dr. Rachel Gie joining me today to give us an insight on the energy poverty in Europe. Dr. Gie is the Director of the Global Energy Transition and Governance Masters at the European Institute, or CIF, in short. She is a member of European Network Engager on Energy Poverty and of the research group Energy and Coalition at Seri Seospo Paris. She also teaches energy transitions and society at Seospo Dijon campus. Today, we will discuss current issues related to energy poverty in Europe, which has significantly increased due to high energy prices. Energy poverty refers to a situation when energy bills represent a high percentage of households' income, or when they must reduce energy consumption to a degree that negatively impacts their health and well-being. With the impact of Russian invasion in Ukraine, inflations, and energy transitions, European households are facing expensive energy bills like never before. Together with Dr. Giet, we will discover the reasons behind the recent surge of energy prices in Europe and discuss how it should be tackled with government support to protect vulnerable households and small businesses. Hello, Dr. Giet. Thank you for coming in today. Before we start, could you briefly introduce yourself and your works at CIF? Uh, first of all, thank you very much, Yangsen, if you allow me, uh, to, um, for your invitation to join you today to discuss this key question regarding energy poverty in, in Europe. I'm very happy to be with you today, and um, I hope I will be able to answer your, your questions and give you some insights into this question that is uh, very close to my heart. Um, at CIF, uh, we have a program regarding the uh, global energy transition, um, and we try to uh, train young, um, young people to become the future generation of policy officers regarding this um, energy transition that is uh, very much needed uh, considering the climate crisis we are all facing. So this is the, the aim of this program. And uh, in addition, as you said it before, I'm partnering with some different uh, networks and organizations um, to um, study, uh, analyze, and uh, try to understand what uh, energy poverty means in the current context, but also in the more global context regarding uh, climate change and energy transition. Great. Thank you for the introduction. And now we'll move on to the questions. So the first question is, in what condition does a household considered to be in energy poverty? And are there some indicators to track it down? Uh, yes, thank you very much for this first uh, very important question. Um, the, the, question the thing is, there is no uniform definition of energy poverty in, in Europe. I mean, if uh, we can broadly look at it, uh, we can say that energy poverty, as you said it before in your introduction, is understood as the difficulties faced by households to access adequate level of domestic energy services to meet their energy needs um, in terms of lighting, cooking, heating, and, and so on. But here I would like to, to underline that um, this question is more than just a simple indicator of how much uh, people are dedicating to their energy expenditure. Energy poverty is a systemic and multidimensional issue at the crossroad of low income, high energy prices and low housing quality. We can't consider energy poverty without looking at the, the dwellings. And uh, these difficulties result uh, from specific um, national past dependent institutional and market settings 
regarding you know social and labor market policies housing policies wage policies climate policies so it's it's a very complex um, issue even if it's a, a very dire lived experience for 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 all the people exposed to this uh, to this problem i mean the, the consequences can be very serious in terms of health physical and mental uh, for both for adults and children it, it, it has also impacts on social cohesion. Uh, it has impacts on the ability of citizens to act in the society and, you know, to carry out the uh, political, economic and social activities they are required to do as citizens. So um, that's why defining this is pretty hard. Measuring it is also very hard, but it's absolutely necessary both to define and measure it, to capture energy poverty in these uh, multi-dimensional character in order to design appropriate public policies to, to address it. Um, the thing is, um, in Europe, most European countries uh, keep considering energy poverty as a simple income poverty issue and do not recognize it as a specific matter of public policies. And despite the efforts of the European Union to encourage member states, uh, even oblige member states now to define, measure, uh, energy poverty, we still have only uh, nine countries out of the EU 27 plus UK um, who were able to develop a definition. So that's that's a difficulty. And um, what the um, yeah what the EU also uh, managed to develop um, in 2016, they launched a European Energy Poverty Observatory, uh, whose mission was to develop energy poverty indicators. Uh, to capture the scope and the depths of uh, energy poverty. So they have established 28 indicators, uh, but usually we use four main primary indicators that are based on an expenditure-based measurement and um, a self-reported assessment of household uh, regarding their inability to keep warm and uh, if whether or not they face uh, bill arrears. And based on these indicators, uh, we see uh, um, big differences. If we look, for example, at the indicator regarding how many households experience cold homes, we see that 33.8 million um, answered yes to that question in 2018. If we look at how many households are paying more uh, or even twice um, the median uh, share of energy expenditure, we reach 82.3 million. So it's a huge topic in Europe and that is very often underestimated. Yes, thank you. I see that um, the current policies and measurements are mainly focused on the household side. So I was wondering if this concept of energy poverty is only applicable to the households or is it also possible to apply to industrial consumers such as businesses and buildings? Uh, this is a very interesting um, question that is uh, actually hard to, <laughs> to answer somehow. Um, the current crisis uh, clearly highlights two new elements. First, um, it's that energy poverty affects uh, both energy poverty in the home, but also in the mobility. A lot of researchers uh, were already looking at this mobility issue or transport poverty issue um, for a while, but now the crisis put it also on top of the agenda. So this is the first new aspect um, from this 
I mean, I would say a learning process uh, from the current crisis. But, and I relate that to your question, it also shows that other consumers may be confronted with affordability issues, uh, such as public services, businesses, local authorities, hospitals, schools, and so on. Um, the thing is, I don't know if we can talk about energy poverty for these consumers or if it only relates to an affordability issue. Um, and I think this is the main difference. Energy poverty is based on the three drivers I was referring to before, low income, high prices, and uh, low quality of housing. Uh, in the case of businesses and local authorities, it's mainly the, 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 the affordability side of energy poverty that we can see here. But actually, it raises another question, the question of competition between the consumers. What I mean here is that currently, we know that we may face some issues uh, regarding the uh, security um, of supply during the winter. Uh, we hear, for example, that we may face some um, disconnections or cuts um, during the winter uh, because of the, the lack of energy security. So it means these consumers, the, the households, businesses, local authorities, public services, and so on, are now competing to access energy, uh, which is really something new in, in our societies. We've ne never had this kind of uh, situation, except when we had a storm and uh, the grid uh, went off because, uh, because of the storm. But just because of energy security supply, we didn't face this kind of risk of cuts off. So this is the first new thing that uh, we learned from this crisis. Um, and the second is, of course, uh, who is going to afford energy now with the price increase? And we clearly see that the first mitigation package, uh, we're focusing on the household, the private household, but the new ones are now also including support to businesses, um, industries, uh, small small businesses, but also local authorities. So it's interesting to see that um, um, it shows that the state is now called upon to absorb the shocks created by the market. So this is also something interesting that is happening uh, now. What, is, what it also shows is how dependent on energy our developed societies are and how a lack of continuous and affordable energy supply may threaten the foundations of our society and economy. And this is a very serious to take into consideration for the economic development, the political stability, but also the social cohesion. So I think your question is relevant. I would say rather talk about energy affordability for these other consumers and keep energy poverty more for private households. Going on to the next question, um, we have faced many socioeconomic crises since 2020, notably the COVID-19 pandemic, and then it was followed by a historical inflation from its recovery, so making everything more expensive. So can you briefly go through how situation has been like in Europe in terms of energy affordability that we mentioned previously? I would like to start with COVID uh, because COVID was an uh, a let's say, a unique experience. I mean, that it, it took everyone uh, by surprise. Um, and um, it was a, really a unique experience regarding the issue of access to energy services. I mean, from March on 
2020 onwards, uh, billions of people across the world were forced to stay home to limit the spread of the, of the virus. But it meant that people were confined to home, uh, not only for the daily life, but also for studying, for working, which was relatively new for everyone. And this means first to have a roof and a decent housing uh, to be able to, to stay safe, which is not um, granted for everyone. Um, but it also means that um, having access to energy was also a critical element for um, reaching some level of well-being during this lockdown period. But we know that before COVID-19, uh, we already had uh, energy poverty in Europe, meaning people struggling to afford adequate levels of energy services at home. So COVID uh, exacerbated these existing vulnerabilities, but also created new ones. I mean, if we look at the three drivers of energy poverty, what can we say during COVID? First of all, we said that energy poverty, I mean, one of the main drivers of it is the home quality. Um, staying at home means that we need to ensure that home was good for everyone, but it's not the case. I mean, first of all, we have homeless, homeless people, but we, are, we also have people living in conditions uh, that are not safe, not secure, not even decent. And when living in rundown dwellings, uh, well-being and comfort are hard to ensure, and especially when you can't go out. So the first thing was the inequalities kind of increased between people who had a decent home and people who didn't. So that was a first big point. If we look at the second driver of energy poverty, i.e. The, the level of income, what happened during the lockdown? Millions of workers uh, either lost their jobs because of the slowdown of the economy, or had to resort to short-time work schemes introduced by governments uh, that, was, uh, that were trying to mitigate the socioeconomic consequences of this crisis. But it had, of course, an impact on the income. Um, and um, the Eurofound um, survey uh, carried out in uh, April and July 2020 in the EU27 showed that uh, one respondent in 10 reporting um, reported facing bill arrears, and uh, it was even worse among uh, unemployed people. So it means that, yes, vulnerabilities have been increasing uh, during this period. And if we look at the third driver of um, uh, energy poverty, uh, meaning the uh, energy prices, uh, what happened uh, when people were uh, locked down at home, they had to increase their energy consumption. We were lucky because the weather was rather good in France, but it was not the case everywhere. Um, for example, uh, in Britain, a survey showed that energy bills may have increased by £32 per month for family confined in a home. In France, it was estimated um, at 5 to 7% increase during the first, the first lockdown. So these increases were not compensated. Um, by the reduction in, in, in other usages. So it means the risk of bill arrears increased uh, during, during the lockdown. And in order to address these risks, um, most governments in Europe decided to act and to protect people against disconnections. So uh, in Europe, 13 countries uh, out of the EU27 plus UK decided to ban disconnections to ensure that people had a continuous supply of energy at home, even if they were facing 
payment difficulties before the, the, the outbreak of the, of the pandemic. And this was something special because some countries had already a kind of disconnection, sorry, disconnection ban during the winter, like in France or in the UK. But some con and these countries decided to extend this ban over a longer period. And some countries like Germany, who didn't have any disconnection ban before, introduced one uh, during the lockdown. So th that was a that was a first. On top um, of, of this disconnection ban, 11 countries decided to introduce a kind of price regulation through price freeze, discounts, uh, additional vouchers during this period to allow people to pay. And uh, in 12 other countries in Europe, payment arrangements were offered in case of difficulty. So we see that these measures had really uh, a mitigation impact on, um, on, on the population. And of course, um, what we see today is exactly the same kind of trend. Uh, since summer 2021, uh, we see that governments again uh, are intervening to, to support uh, households. Um, and they started intervening during the summer 2021 when the prices started uh, increasing. And they, from February on, uh, when uh, Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, uh, then we see that all governments across Europe decided to act. And this is a first, really, even in countries uh, that did not recognize energy poverty as an issue, they all started intervening, putting in place uh, direct financial transfers, tax reductions on electricity and gas, energy price regulation, but also indirect financial support by increase um, uh, of uh, pensions, of um, housing allowances, and so on. So we see really a converging trend of um, governments acting uh, in order to mitigate the effects of this price hike on the households. And now, over the past few months, let's say, um, we see also governments acting to try to mitigate uh, the impacts of the price increase on other households, like the one you mentioned in your previous question, businesses, industries, uh, public services. It was a very comprehensive answer, so thank you. So I think you mentioned that the governments had already put into measures since summer 2021, and that was a bit before the Russian invasion in Ukraine, which happened in February this year. So the government putting in measures early on is kind of an indicator that the energy prices had already surged even before the Russian invasion in Ukraine. So was there any, um, would have been other reasons behind this? Yeah, um, good question too. Um, yeah, so there are multiple reasons for this uh, price hike uh, starting already uh, in uh, summer 20, 20, 2021. Um, what we, I mean, there are a combination of exceptional factors and but also structural causes, I would say. So if we look at the exceptional factors, um, I think the, um, the after COVID, uh, there, was a, there was a huge increase in gas demand uh, from all over the world, and especially in Asia. And um, because of the recovery plans put in place by a lot of countries everywhere in the world, um, the economy was boosted and the economy needs energy, right? So it, it, it created a huge gas demand uh, everywhere. 
And this exceptional demand somehow uh, was combined with very unfavorable weather conditions in Europe um, that impeded the production of wind and solar energy. So it created a kind of uh, mismatch between the supply and the demand based on this specific um, situation after, after COVID. But uh, I was referring to more structural causes. And here we can say that the high EU dependency on gas imports is a structural cause explaining that because of this high dependency on gas, of course, uh, we competed uh, with uh, demand uh, outside the EU and therefore um, put some pressure on the, on the prices. Uh, the second uh, structural um, uh, factors is the fact that um, in Europe, the way the market, the energy market is designed is that the price of gas is coupled with the price of electricity. So the higher the price of gas, the higher the price of electricity. So it means that the high price of gas uh, started uh, starting in, in the summer 2021, 20, starting having an impact also on electricity prices. So which was uh, very bad news for, for, for everyone. Um, and uh, now we see that we have a market design um, that result in very volatile prices. We don't have enough alternative sources uh, to compensate for the, the mismatch between the supply and, and demand. And I guess probably uh, the main question we can raise based on that is whether transforming energy into a tradable commodity isn't maybe the core issue to be addressed here. Thank you. So you mentioned that the gas prices in Europe is related to the electricity prices. So how worse has been the situation for the average household after the Russian invasion in Ukraine in terms of energy affordability and accessibility? Yeah, that was, um, I mean, it's not a long time ago that it happened. So we don't have uh, a lot of distance uh, regarding this, but we, we can already see the, the impact. And I mean, uh, it, it was quite a shock uh, when overnight uh, the price of gas on the 23rd of February uh, jumped from 75 euros per megawatt hour to 132 euros per megawatt hour. So clearly it has a, a, a huge impact, of course, on the gas price. But as I said before, because the gas and electricity prices are coupled on the uh, electricity price as well. So how the, does that translate uh, for the uh, for the household? Um, I mean, um, b between uh, January 2021 and May 2022, roughly, uh, the electricity price increased by 73%, the price of natural gas by 120%, and the petrol price increased by 36%. So it means it has not only an impact on the on the bill of the household, but it, it also has a, an impact on the on the prices of goods and services that are produced. So it means the impact is also to be seen on the purchasing power of, of households. Concretely, what does that mean? mean it means increasing inequalities among the society between those who can pay and afford this increase and those who can't. Uh, it means that um, uh, people, normal people, but then also, of course, as you said before, industries and uh, businesses uh, are also uh, spending more uh, for their uh, energy expenditure. And different studies in the EU show that low-income households 
are disproportionately affected. Uh, some of them could pay 20% more than higher income households for their domestic energy use. So it means um, it reduces their ability to pay constrained expenses um, to the detriment sometimes of the health and, and well-being. This, this, this problem uh, is illustrated uh, by the heat and eat the dilemma uh, where we see um, people uh, setting priorities in their expenditure uh, between sometimes heating and food or um, heating and um, health care, for example. So this has a short term, but also a, a long term impact. It may result um, in higher number in a higher number of disconnections when people accumulate debts. Uh, at the end of the day, if there is no protection against disconnection, people uh, could be disconnected from from energy, which put them in a, an even uh, worse um, situation. And clearly, this disconnection uh, aspect has not been taken into consideration much during this uh, this current crisis. The focus of the government were more about um, affordability issue than about protecting them from disconnections. Um, we can see also that it's, um, I mean, you know, children living in cold homes because uh, their parents can't afford paying for heating um, may face difficulties, even more difficulties. So it means health issues, development issues for children. And this is the next generation who, who is now concerned uh, if, if the parents can't afford uh, to, to heat the home. We, we see also another trend, and uh, this is shown uh, by different uh, German studies. Um, in Germany, they say that 40% uh, of German lower middle class households could also face energy poverty while they were not concerned before. It's the same trend a bit in the Netherlands, where 600,000 households are now facing financial difficulties that they never had before. So we see also a new trend uh, towards the impact on the middle class. Of course, uh, it means that uh, governments are aware of that and also of the political and social risks uh, that it may uh, have on the society. And therefore, all governments are now really uh, intervening on, on these issues to try to mitigate the consequences of this price hike. I see. And could you introduce some of the actions taken by the governments to alleviate this impact of high energy prices and have they been effective so far? Uh, good question. I mean, a lot of uh, money uh, has been put in these uh, mitigation uh, measures. Um, it's either, you know, uh, to introduce additional uh, vouchers uh, or social tariff, in increasing social tariff, so a direct income support to the payment of the um, energy bill. Uh, in France and in other countries, we have this uh, shield, uh, energy shield against a price increase. So we have a kind of regulation on, uh, uh, of, the, of the prices to limit the increase. As you may know, uh, in France, we limited it uh, up to 4% increase uh, until now. And uh, then uh, from this, uh, this winter, it may increase up to 15%, but no more, which is way below the, uh, the, current, uh, the current increase. It's also interesting to see that this time, uh, governments also uh, introduced measures uh, to alleviate the burden for mobility use. I mean, uh, um, actions were taken to, to cap uh, the petrol price uh, for 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 all for for all the people, um, and probably 
most of these measures uh, are universal uh, and therefore they don't really redistribute benefits to the profit of the most vulnerable. I mean, uh, um, let's say high income households may be able to afford this price increase, but they still benefit from these universal measures like the reduction uh, of taxes uh, on the petrol, for example, uh, which means that people who most need uh, the support are a bit you know, left behind and uh, I mean, not left behind in the sense that they also benefit from this support, but it means the support is not enough to compensate for the increase uh, of, the, of the energy prices. A study in France showed that for 100% spent by the state to cap the price, 13 euros are going to be received by the highest income decide, the 10%, while 8 euros by the lowest income decide. So it means if we look at it in terms of inequalities, uh, these universal measures don't really address the, the problem of the, of the low-income household and the, the people most in need of, of support. And when measures are means-tested means or targeting uh, low-income, usually the level of support is not enough and it's usually a, a, a one-off payment uh, while we see that the increase of the prices is going to be long-term. So there is a mismatch between this short-term protection uh, offered uh, by this cautioning action and the need for longer-term protection that would require more structural investment like uh, you know, investing in energy efficiency, for, for example. Um, another point I would like to make here to, to, to try to answer your question whether or not it's, effect, it's, it's effective. Um, in the UK, for example, at the same time that they are uh, saying that they are going to, to, to support households to pay for their, for their bill, um, the, the government decided to increase the bill by £94 um, uh, in order to support uh, companies, uh, that energy companies that are facing bankruptcy. So on the one hand, the government is um, putting money to mitigate the effects on the price hike, but on the other hand, uh, the, the government is making decision also to increase uh, this, uh, the, the energy bill. So it, it's not, not consistent um, in terms of state action. So um, I would say these actions uh, can only be effective in the short term, uh, but they are not compensating for the uh, increasing difficulties of low-income households. So at the end of the day, we can really question whether or not these mitigation measures are effective. Of course, the situation would be worse without them. So I'm not saying that we need to stop that. Of course not. But we probably need to redesign them so that they really help people who really need them the most. Moving on to the next topic, people have been discussing that this energy crisis will be a great um, driver for the society, society to move to cleaner energy sources. So I was wondering how will the transition to low carbon sources such as renewable will impact um, energy poverty? Will it improve it or worsen it? Energy transition uh, has to be fair. And in order to be fair, it has to be well designed. And currently, um, there are some issues regarding how the energy transition is funded. Um, in, in a lot of European countries, it's funded by taxes levied uh, from the energy bills of each consumer. So it means that um, low-income consumers living in what we call passoire thermique in, in French, so thermal sieves, uh, are consuming more uh, for a lower level of comfort, but are also contributing a lot 
and very often disproportionately to fund uh, the energy transition without being able to benefit from it. Because in order to benefit from that, you need to be owner of your home so that you can invest in solar panels and you need to have money to invest for that. Um, and clearly, uh, low-income households are usually tenants and can't decide on investing on solar panels on the roof of the flat they are renting. Um, and they don't have the capacity even when they are um, home, home um, occupier. Um, so home owner occupier, sorry. Uh, so I would say, depending on the way the energy transition is funded, it can have a negative impact uh, on low-income households and not be fair then. Uh, but as I said before, energy transition can also be an amazing opportunity um, to protect households against soaring prices, uh, especially if we invest money into improving the quality of the dwellings through energy efficiency measures, for example, and if renewable energies are made available to, to all. Um, and uh, in this regard, the recast of renewable energy directive of 2019 uh, support uh, and, and try to empower consumers uh, to, to invest in renewable energy also via renewable energy communities. Um, and these renewable energy communities could be a good way uh, to promote social, economic and environmental objectives. With some colleagues, we did um, a survey. We collected uh, data from 71 European renewable energy communities to try to know whether or not they were able uh, to address energy poverty. And unfortunately, the results were that 76% of our respondents do not address energy poverty, either because they don't exactly know what energy poverty means, uh, because uh, their business model is not adapted for that. They know how to invest in renewable energies. They don't know what to do uh, for energy poverty. So there is a a real information need, uh, uh, not only to empower consumers, but also to empower uh, these kind of organizations um, who are able to share the benefits of energy transition. Because, for example, there are very good practices across Europe, and I will just mention one here. The city of Eclo in, in Belgium cooperated um, with uh, an energy uh, cooperative called EcoPower, and the city of Eclo bought 25% of the shares of the wind turbine and offered the share uh, of the wind turbine to vulnerable um, consumers so that they could become a member of EcoPower and benefit for, from cheaper, affordable um, energy prices. So this is a, a good example how a cooperation between a renewable energy community, a city, um, and uh, the renewable energy uh, uh, as well uh, can have a positive impact on, on, on energy poverty. Also, one of the uh, well-known measures introduced by the government for the energy transitions is carbon pricing. And it is said that it has regressive impacts on households. So if the government should design carbon pricing in a way to minimize the impact on this high carbon price, how should they prevent this carbon cost shifting to the consumers? Yeah, this is a very good question. And uh, when we see uh, what's uh, going on at the moment at European level regarding this uh, second EU ETS uh, that is supposed to be extended to transport and building, we see how difficult it is to design a proper 
uh, energy taxation that is not regressive. And um, uh, currently, the debates are not closed. Um, and it's still quite unclear how it's going to, to work. Um, the thing is, of course, uh, climate instruments uh, need to be uh, introduced if we want to tackle the climate crisis. Um, but th the question behind that is, is again, who is going to pay and who is going to benefit? And it has to be fair. So this carbon pricing has to be fairly designed in order to contribute to the social acceptance of the climate action of the EU, but also of, of the government. So uh, at EU level, there was this reflection to introduce a social climate fund uh, with the aim to compensate for the cost increase resulting from uh, carbon pricing. Um, so far, it's unclear when uh, this social climate fund is going to be introduced and how much it's going to cover, because the first idea uh, that was developed was that this social climate fund was supposed to compensate uh, for the cost increase, but at the same time promote the investment, the structural investment in renewable energies. And this philosophy is the good one. I mean, we need both uh, short-term compensation and long-term uh, investment. Uh, the question is uh, how much you invest in this kind of compensation fund and uh, to whom you target it. So I guess the reflection today is um, the volume of this compensation fund and also the target of the compensation fund and behind that, how it's going to be delivered and by whom. So I think it's a very complex issue um, and it has to be very well thought. Otherwise, it may lead to further increase and, and worsen the inequalities among the society and therefore also uh, reduce the social acceptance of the climate action, which is really not what we need uh, currently. So um, it's, it's really hard to figure out uh, what will result from the current debates at EU level. It's going to be interesting to, to follow the, the discussions that are happening now, actually, on this issue. Definitely. In the previous answers, you mentioned that there are some difficulties for homeowners or low-income households who are actually the tenants of the house have difficulties implementing these new efficient appliances to their homes because it's not their houses. So I was wondering if there is a role for energy efficiency in reduce, reducing energy poverty. So for instance, a low-income household tend to live in like a cheaper, inefficient buildings, which are likely to have more energy consumption with less heating output. So can improving this building efficiency provide better access to energy for these households? Yeah, this is absolutely uh, essential that uh, we improve energy efficiency of, of, of the buildings. I mean, uh, it's, it's not acceptable somehow that people are paying a lot of money in, the, uh, in, the, in their energy, especially in the heating, uh, to reach a very low level of comfort because all, all the, 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 the heat is going out of the building and not inside. So, um, I mean, the, the first thing is to think how we keep the, the, the heat um, inside. First of all, it would uh, reduce uh, the, the, the bill of the, of the households, but it was also uh, decrease the need for, for, for more energy production. And this is a topic currently. And it will also reduce the impact on CO2 emissions. So, I mean, energy efficiency it is considered as a package 
uh, that can have uh, positive impacts on this, on this, at least on these three uh, three aspects. So yes, we need it, and clearly the EU understood that uh, because they they are promoting this renovation wave as a flagship flagship policy of the of the EU, and it's a really a tool to reach this uh, carbon neutrality that we we plan we we, we plan to reach. The problem is, uh, as you said, how to implement that. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's almost a shame that this energy crisis we are um, experiencing at the moment is not promoting more debates regarding how we concretely implement this renovation wave. Um, I mean, there are topics about what, what kind of standards do we impose? Uh, what is the level on, of funding do we have? Who, uh, who this funding is targeting? Um, how to address the most vulnerable housing in priority uh, and how you convince people that it's a good way for them to, to, to go. Um, how to cover the remaining cost of this retrofitting that modest households uh, don't have the capacity to, to cover. There is always a gap between the subsidies that are available and the, the real cost of this uh, retrofitting. So how do you how do you cover this last mile uh, so that uh, households can really uh, afford? How to avoid renovations? Uh, this is a, a, a real topic. Um, for example, if, if you are a tenant and your, your landlord decides to improve the, the building, usually part of the cost of the works is going to be passed on to, to the tenants. But the tenants don't have the money uh, to, 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 to pay this difference. And sometimes the energy savings uh, that are generated by this uh, retrofitting are not enough to cover the increase in rent. So how do we cover this so that people um, can stay in their home at, uh, at, at adequate level of rent uh, while lowering uh, their, uh, their energy bill? So this is a really a, a big question because sometimes when these um, buildings are retrofitted, uh, we see a kind of gentrification of this building and uh, people who are supposed to be supported by the retrofitting uh, have to move away. So it's it's really not uh, what we need to do. So the question is uh, how to support households from A to Z uh, in, the, in the project of retrofitting, i.e. from the diagnosis of the building, of the housing, to the control of the quality of the works carried out, and also... Uh, how to support uh, these households to adjust their consumption behavior to the new uh, systems put in place in order to avoid the rebound effects uh, uh, of, of this uh, retrofitting. So yes, energy efficiency is a, is a key to address energy poverty, to reduce uh, uh, the, the, the cost of, of energy and to save, um, to save energy uh, at the same time. But the, 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 the programs, the schemes that are put in place need to be designed in a way that they target the, the right building and they avoid, um, let's say, uh, ex negative externalities. Thank you for this very comprehensive picture of how this energy poverty issue is not only just the issue of affordability, but also um, connected to other issues like energy transitions and increasing efficiency and having a A to Z comprehensive support measures. So now I would like to move on to a more broader approach. So in what kind of EU level policies has been announced to tackle the energy poverty? Are there any roadmaps or goals to achieve within a certain timeline? 
Yeah, of course, the EU reacted uh, quite rapidly uh, to this uh, crisis. I mean, the, the first one in 2021 and, and now this, uh, this new one since February 2022. Um, uh, the EU Commission published a toolbox in October 2021 uh, supporting the emergency relief action of the member state um, to compensate for the impact of the price hike. And they also promoted um, long-term goals such as empowering consumers uh, to switch suppliers, to invest in energy efficiency and renewable energy. So the EU focused both on the short-term and long-term long perspective. Currently, we can see that national governments are rather focusing on the short-term mitigation measures uh, and that long-term measures um, need to be uh, better uh, designed, let's say, uh, especially the energy efficiency measures. The EU currently is... Um, introducing a correction mechanism on the energy market uh, with a kind of uh, price cap on gas uh, that is supposed to avoid speculation and uh, sharp increases uh, of gas prices on the market. So it's, it has been decided just uh, uh, last week, if I remember well. Um, but it's we, we don't know exactly how it's going to work, but the EU at least is trying to, to, to work on, on that. Um, what we can see is that market actors are not happy with that, with that, this interference of the state of the EU on the, the way the market is working. And energy poverty activists are not uh, happy either uh, because it's not clear how it will positively contribute to tackling uh, the risk of energy poverty. Um, so I think what is really needed is an integrated approach to tackling energy poverty um, um, as we said at the very beginning, energy poverty is a structural issue intersecting with low income, high energy prices and uh, low quality of housing. So we need to integrate uh, a policy that is uh, tackling the three aspects of energy poverty and avoid having a silo approach of, of it. And what we see currently is that uh, energy poverty is either, ta either tackled as a social issue, so with the income support uh, issues, but then we forget about the other aspects of, um, of, the, uh, of energy poverty. And it's also related to the perception of energy poverty by the, by the countries, and most of them consider it as an income um, poverty issue and not as a global um, holistic uh, issue. So this is a, a, a first thing um, that, that, should be, that should be addressed. Um, and I would say, if you know, if we want to be more ambitious uh, regarding, uh, um, yeah, fighting energy poverty, uh, there is um, something very interesting in the EU, but that is not applied. Unfortunately, it's the principle twenty of the European Pillar of Social Rights, stating, and I quote here, that everyone has the right to access essential services of good quality including water, sanitation, energy, transport, financial services, and digital communications. Um, so it's clearly stated at EU level that we should consider energy as a right uh, to essential services. Uh, and it's, it's, really, it's really not, not the case. Um, so currently, I would say uh, that what would be a revolution based on this current crisis would be to be more ambitious, um, more ambitious regarding um, this question, and and really ask ourselves whether energy should be considered as a tradable commodity 
or as an essential service or a common good. Um, and I think this is this is something that we really need to think in a short, but also in a in a long term, um, because we see that markets uh, have not been able to offer the cheap prices that we were promised when when the energy markets were liberalized. Now we see the markets are facing uh, huge issues of volatility and uncertainties. And in this situation, the state has to intervene. So to me, this is really a question of what's the role of the market? What's the role of the state uh, in the energy sector? And whether or not we shouldn't reconsider energy as an essential service. Um, A lot of scholars are now calling for a new social ecological contract that is driven by social justice and not by economic efficiency and profits. So there are now uh, new reflections on how we should consider energy. And uh, I would say the crisis uh, we are experiencing now could be an opportunity to say to go a bit beyond this correction mechanism that we, correction and mitigation mechanism that governments and the EU are introducing currently. I'm happy to, start, to, to to conclude this session with this idea of uh, reconsidering energy as an es- essential service, because uh, really, to me, this is uh, really what could make the difference and uh, maybe address uh, energy poverty in a broader perspective. So thank you for concluding on this. Yes, thank you for your insightful comments today. It really helped us to understand what it is like to go through energy poverty in difficult times and that comprehensive actions are needed to tackle the situation. And although it is important to pursue a fast transition to secure and clean energy sources, I hope the governments and leaders do not forget to create a social safety net for the most affected population from this transition process. So thank you very much, Dr. Gie. Thank you very much, Youngson. And I hope policymakers will listen to your conclusions uh, because they are really uh, very well addressed uh, and uh, very well targeted to the issue we discussed today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy podcast, recorded and produced in Paris by Youngson Om with the help of Katharina Manke and Julio Altese and the team of Radio German, the Sciences Po Students Radio. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. If you're an undergrad student and you are interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po.